Abbey, Tulsi Gabbard's challenging Democratic presidential campaign. Candace Owen leads the Plexic movement. And Dino's daughter, Dina Martin, performs. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike McAvee! Oh, thank you very much. What a great great audience we have right here in our theater in Hendersonville, Tennessee, just north of Nashville. By the way, if you've not yet come to our show, what are you waiting on? It's an open invitation, and I got real special news for you. When you spend all your Christmas money, the tickets for this show are free. You cannot beat the price. I guarantee you'll get your money's worth when you come to our show. And we do have a terrific lineup tonight. Hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but Ambien sales plummeted this week because Americans realized that instead of taking a pill to help them sleep, all they had to do was watch Jerry Nadler and the House Judiciary Committee <laughs> pretend that they were on track to impeach President Trump. And of course, they said they were doing it out of their civic duty. Don't know if you saw it, but even Nadler himself dozed off during the hearings. <laughs> it really was that bad. But it wasn't boring because three out of the four law professors hauled in to be experts droned on and on about how smart they were and how bad President Trump is and how stupid his supporters are. No, it was boring because it was nothing but balloon juice from highly partisan Democrats who to this day have continued to shed tears and scream because they didn't win the 2016 presidential election. Now, it was amazing that with a straight face, many of the Democrats on the committee said out loud they were unsure about impeachment, even though 17 of the 24 members of the Democratic side of the committee had already voted to impeach the president in the months before. Please think on that. Before having heard a shred of evidence, they had already decided what the charges and the punishment should be. So imagine if you got charged with a crime and the jury pool deciding your fate came to the trial having already publicly declared that before the first witness or fact was presented, they already knew they were ready to convict you. I mean, do you think anybody would believe that's a fair trial? If you don't like or if you cannot vote for Donald Trump or the Republicans next year, fine. But you might want to either not vote, write in somebody's name, or vote for an independent rather than trust people like Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler, Nancy Pelosi, and the folks with them because I don't know if you want them to have even a piece of your government. Remember, voters gave them the House in 2018. But instead of passing the incredibly important USMCA trade bill, border security, protection of Social Security, or innovations to hold down the cost of your health care, the Democrats have focused on one and only one thing, impeaching a president that was elected, but that the Democrats and the D.C. swamp rats just can't stand. Hey, the solution to removing a president you don't like is electing a different one in the next election. Not to undo the previous election. That's how our system's supposed to work. Their verdict of impeachment hasn't changed before Trump took office. But the reason has changed more than a baby's diaper and for exactly the same reason. Now, the one law professor who made sense out of the whole thing was Jonathan Turley of George Washington University School of Law. He said there was an abuse of power, but not by the president, but by the House Democrats. Now, keep in mind, he explicitly stated he was not a Trump supporter. He didn't vote for Trump. He said it out loud. He said he voted for Clinton, he voted for Obama, but his very clear reason for warning against impeachment was that there was no constitutional grounds 
for impeachment and to proceed would constitute an abuse of power, which is the very thing the Democrats accuse the president of. Hey, one thing is clear. If the Democrats proceed with this sham, the equivalence of what I call political pornography, President Trump will win by a landslide a year from now. Now, Americans, they might like a good fight, and if they're in a fight, they want their side to win. I'm gonna tell you something, most Americans want the fight to be fair, and they're smart enough to know that these <clears throat> trumped-up charges are not about you, the Constitution, or our children's future. It's about petulant, petty, and politically bitter people trying to rig an election. And even Democrats, at least the fair ones, know that's not how we elect or how we get rid of a president. My first guest tonight is a Democratic Congresswoman from Hawaii. She's serving her fourth and final term in Congress. Now, it's final because she plans to become President of the United States. I'm pleased to welcome the first female combat veteran to ever run for U.S. President, Representative Tulsi Gabbard. Congresswoman, we're delighted to have you here. I want to ask right off the bat, it seems like there are some folks in the Democratic Party that are scared to death of you. Why are they afraid of Tulsi Gabbard? Uh, well, first of all, aloha, Governor. Merry <laughs> Christmas. It's Thank great you. Uh, to speak with you. Um, look, I, I love our country, and I appreciate very much the vision that our founders had for our country, that they envisioned that we would be led uh, by those who are focused on serving the American people and a government that is truly of, by, and for the people. As you know well, that's not what we have. We have a government of, by, and for the rich and powerful, and as president, I aim to change that. I aim to, to return our government to one that is truly of the people, by the people, and for the people. And unfortunately, the establishment in Washington just doesn't like that. They don't like what I stand for, and they don't like that uh, they can't control me. You have described yourself as a hawk when it comes to fighting terrorists, but a dove when it comes to engaging in uh, as you would put it, and I think all of us would agree, endless wars. Define the difference between a fight against terrorism and then a fight with regimes and nations and within nations, et cetera. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really important distinction to make. And, you know, this, this term endless wars and forever wars is kind of being thrown around a lot, especially in this presidential primary, without any specificity about what that actually means. And uh, I bring the experience of, of having served as a soldier for almost 17 years and deploying twice to the Middle East to understand that we must continue to work to defeat Al-Qaeda, the terrorist group that attacked us on that day, and other jihadist groups like, like ISIS and those who threaten the safety and security of the American people, and to do so with a smart and effective strategy. However, we must end this longstanding regime change uh, war policy, these wars that have cost us tremendously as taxpayer dollars, over $6 trillion since 9-11 alone, going towards waging these regime change wars in countries like Iraq and Libya and Syria, wars that have actually undermined our national security, strengthening these terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, making us less safe. How dangerous is it that uh, we've had wars that were essentially waged singularly by a president not the current one, but in the past, rather than having Congress vote on engaging in these battles. Uh, how, how does that frustrate you, both as a major in the Army as well as a member of Congress? Yeah. Our Constitution very clearly delineates responsibilities between the President and the Executive Branch and Congress, setting clear that Congress is the body that is responsible for deciding whether or not to declare war. Now, it's unfortunate that for a very long time now, Congress has given up that responsibility largely to the executive branch, and we've seen presidents uh, abusing their authority and their power in going out and waging wars, regime change wars, toppling dictators in other countries where we have no business intervening, and that actually undermine the interests of the American people 
and our national security. Uh, this is why I think you know uh, our friend, Congressman Walter Jones, who passed away mm -hmm. uh, last year, but he and I worked on legislation together called the No More Presidential Wars Act that goes back to our Constitution and says that there should be no more of these presidential wars. Congress has to do their job and fulfill that responsibility that our founders laid out for us in the Constitution. This past week, another Democrat dropped out. This time it was Kamala Harris. Uh, a lot of people say that was because of the evisceration that she took at your hand in the second debate. I, I'll be honest with you, when she first started, I thought, she's going to be a real contender. She was articulate, charismatic. She had a uh, California background, lots of donors. Uh, she did well in the first debate. Second debate, you took her on. She never recovered. Do you somewhat feel a little responsible for the uh, complete collapse of her campaign, that she never recovered from that debate? I think what's what's important to focus on is uh, I think a couple of things. Number one is that uh, the truth matters and voters deserve to be informed so that they can make the best decision possible about who they would like to see as our Democratic nominee and eventually as the next president of the United States. Uh, number two, I think I think that um, we've seen how the media was really helpful in um, not helpful to her campaign and some of the other candidates who are running and not asking the tough questions. You know, I should not have been the first person to, to bring up uh, Senator Harris's record as attorney general uh, in California and, and raising questions that, that she really didn't have answers to. So I think the, the focus that I have had and that I continue to have through our campaign is really about leadership and experience and action not just words and rhetoric that you hear on the campaign trail, but actually bringing forward that experience uh, and the record that I have in Congress of bringing people together, working across the aisle, uh, focusing on putting service above self, putting the best interests of our country above all else. Uh, I am the only candidate that's speaking out strongly to bring about an end to these regime change wars, work to end this new Cold War and nuclear arms race so that we can redirect our taxpayer dollars actually towards serving the needs of the American people. And what's really incredible, Governor, is that as I'm carrying this message to people all across New Hampshire, all across the country, while we can agree to disagree on some other issues, this issue is one that is bringing Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Independents together uh, to join our campaign, building this unifying coalition that is necessary, yes, to defeat Donald Trump in 2020, most importantly, to be able to bring about the kind of positive change in our country that we need in order to bring about a government that is truly of, by, and for the people, bringing people together in order to say, hey, our focus is on serving the needs and the interests of the American people. We've got a lot more coming up with Tulsi Gabbard. She's running for president, but she's still a member of Congress. So will she vote to impeach President Trump? We'll ask her find out a lot more right after the break. And welcome back. Let's get back to business with my first guest tonight, Congresswoman and Democratic presidential candidate, Tulsi Gabbard. You were speaking about bringing people together is the impeachment process bringing people together? Is that a good thing? Your speaker now has said there will be articles of impeachment. We have an election less than a year away. Is that the best way to get rid of a president? People have been talking about impeaching Trump uh, since right after he got elected. Uh, and I've expressed concern about this partisan pursuit of impeachment because of the di extremely divisive impact um, that it would have on our country. Um, I think it's important that I've said it for a long time. Uh, look, I plan on defeating Donald Trump in 2020. I believe I'm the only candidate that can do that and that the best way to do so is for the people, the voters in this country, to be able to make sure their voices are heard at the ballot box. Uh, now, I voted for the inquiry to begin because I thought there were serious concerns that were raised about abuse of power. Uh, I think I thought Congress should go through and, and bring evidence to the forefront 
Uh, I'm looking through that information uh, that's been presented, uh, see what else is out there that has not yet been heard and presented before I make a final decision uh, on voting on any articles of impeachment. A lot of the Democrats are saying they haven't made a decision, but 17 out of the 24 members of the Judiciary Committee had already voted for an impeachment. So uh, how many people in your party are actually waiting, as you have described, to see what the evidence is? And if you became president, and this becomes the new norm. As soon as the election is over, let's impeach the person who won because those of us yeah. who lost didn't like it. Where does that take our country? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly the, the concern that I've had for a very long time is, is that making this the new norm, that, that impeachment is pursued for partisan interests alone really does undermine our democracy because it would do exactly what you're saying, where if this is done for purely partisan purposes, then whoever the losing party is in the next election will once again be try to find excuses to pursue impeachment because they don't like the decision that the voters made in the previous election. This is where we go from being a democracy to really being a banana republic, and it has a very dangerous potential outcome for our country. It's why it's necessary for all of our leaders in our country, Democrat and Republican and independent, to keep at the forefront what is in the best interest of our country. Put country before partisan politics. Make sure we're putting the well-being of the people of our country first. One quick final question. You've been out on the campaign trail. You've been on a lot of those trails of Iowa, New Hampshire, many of the other early states. What's been the biggest surprise that you have yeah. found on a personal level going out there and connecting with voters in a state very different than Hawaii? <laughs> Uh, how much it is that that we share in common, you know, as, as different as New Hampshire may be from Hawaii, especially at this time of year, <laughs> where Hawaii, I know we grew up Christmas time was was uh, 80 degrees and, and going out for a morning surf, uh, a little bit different out here in New Hampshire. But what we see, whether it's in New Hampshire, Iowa, or different states across the country is, including in Hawaii, is the beauty um, that we see in the American people. You know, that when it comes right down to it, as, as you and I may disagree on different issues, Governor, that at our core, we love our country and we appreciate so much the values and the, the principles and freedoms enshrined in our Constitution. And by going back and actually remembering what it is that unites us, we see the path forward shining bright about how we can bridge the divides that we're seeing, unfortunately, tearing our country apart and come together, treating each other with respect. Well, political and policy differences aside, I don't think anyone can question your patriotism and love of country. Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, thank you very much. Thank you, Governor. You can keep up with her campaign for president at Tulsi2020.com and check her out on Facebook and Twitter at Tulsi Gabbard. Now, by the way, if you'd like to hear more on my perspective of the news that matters this week, Head to Huckabee.tv and check out my Facts of the Matter segment. It's honest, straightforward, and I even answer your questions on the issues of the day. Be sure to watch Facts of the Matter after the show on Huckabee.tv. Now, speaking of news, Keith Bilbrey is standing by with some exciting news about the rest of our show tonight. Keith, take it away. Coming up, Christine Kane's campaign against slavery and conservative commentator Candace Owens and later Dina Martin sings on Huckabee. Next week, Tony Orlando sings a song of Christmas cheer and discover the intersection of faith, food, and grace. And welcome back. Now, for 11 years, the A21 campaign has had a simple mandate, abolish slavery everywhere forever. And over the course of 11 years, more than 1,000 people have been freed from the throes of human trafficking. Their latest push asks a very simple yet significant question to help open eyes to the persistence of human trafficking. Take a look. This campaign helps the public identify a victim, whether that be in a scenario they find themselves in, whether it be a now salon or a car wash or a laundrette or whatever it may be, 
it empowers you to make a call to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. So one of the things I really like about Can You See Me is that it's depicting certain types. It's this is a type of pimp control trafficking, which is one of the forms of sex trafficking. This is a type of domestic worker trafficking, which is one of the 17 major forms of labor trafficking in America. I think that the campaign is a vital uh, component of a uh, multi-stakeholder approach that the problem of human trafficking and in our section we specialize in child sex trafficking. The Can You See Me campaign is a really exciting effort and partnership between multiple organizations and it provides the public with real-life examples to empower them with education and give them an action-oriented response so that they know where to make reports. Well, you know her from her worldwide efforts to empower women and end human trafficking. And her best-selling books are another reason you might know her. The latest one is this one. It's called Undaunted. Daring to do what God calls you to do. Would you please welcome Christine Kane? Christine, thank you so much. Christine, I am so thrilled you're here. I, I told you before the show something, and, and it, it didn't offend you, and I'm happy, because I said that you're one of those few people that when I watch you on television, and I watch you on TVN, you have such an amazing ability to communicate that I can turn the sound off and I still get a communication from you because there's an exuberance. There is a joy that emanates from you. Not everybody has that, and, and it's a compliment. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I love to listen to you, but I love to see the joy. But this book reminds me it's not always been exuberance. Oh, no. <laughs> so th th your start was not exactly stellar. Well, it, it, no, Governor, you know, it's, it's amazing. I, I grew up in Sydney, Australia. That's my accent. I thought that was Alabama. You it know, sure very similar. Like Alabama, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> but I, I grew up the daughter of Greek immigrants. And, um, you know, two weeks before my 33rd birthday, my brother called me to tell me that he had received a, a, a phone call, a letter from the government, to tell him that he'd been adopted. He was 35, I was 33, and I didn't believe him, but we raced over to my mother's house, confronted my mum, my mother started crying, saying all of the adoption laws were different in Australia 35 years ago, and it was true that um, when the adoption laws changed, my brother was notified. In that exchange between my brother and my mum, my mum came to me and she said, Christine, since we're telling the truth today, do you want to know the whole truth? So at that moment, I found out that I wasn't who I thought I was, that my whole life had been uh, different. My name wasn't what I thought I was, my heritage, my background, everything. And it was shocking to me, you know, in, in that sense. Um, I had also grown up in the poorest zip code in my state, daughter of Greek immigrants. I was sexually abused at the hands of um, four men for 12 years. Mm. So not only was there abuse, adoption, abandonment, rejection, when I got my letters, uh, documents from the government, um, it says in the box that says child's name, it says unnamed number 2508 You of were not even given a name no. at your birth. Literally, my birth certificate says unnamed, 2508 of 1966. How devastating was it to find out that when you came into this world, was, you basically were abandoned? Yeah, ab abandoned and not even named, just a number. You know, it would have been more devastating, except I had a relationship with the Lord. And, you know, in that moment when I was holding the birth certificate that said unnamed, 2508, um, I opened the scripture, Isaiah 49 verse 1 says, from the womb of your mother I have named your name. And in my heart I had a sense then that was Christine, both of these are black and white ink on paper. One is the word of God and one is the, the birth certificate. It will take you as much faith to believe this or that. They are both facts, but where you put your faith on which facts you now put your faith will determine where you end up. It will take you as much faith to believe this or this. And it was at that moment that I determined to make the truth of the word of God more powerful than the facts of my circumstances. What and it turned everything around. What a beautiful story. Yeah. Oh. I love that. Yeah. That really is the message of Undaunted, yeah. this book, because you, you speak, it's not gender specific, it's not just for women, no. but I think so many women struggle with the idea that they don't have an identity yeah. of who they are. What you've just described and what you talk about in that book, it, it's empowering to women. 
Very much so, because we're daughters of the King. God has created us in His image and named us, and He sees us and He's chosen us. And so many of us have didn't start well, but your history doesn't have to define your destiny. Yeah. I mean, we're a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is why you can live with undaunted faith. And I think if you spend your life looking at what, making what Jesus did for us bigger than what anyone else did to us, it could actually change the way you look at the future. But that's a spiritual decision that a yes. person has to make. It's not something psychological. No. It's not financial. It's not, okay, once I have enough money, then I'm undaunted. No. Well, that's right, because those circumstances didn't change for me. Um, a lot of my circumstances, it, um, financial struggle, just uh, gender identity, a whole lot of stuff like that didn't change. But through the Word of God, I discovered the truth. I think that's why, you know, if you abide yeah. in my Word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so, that's where true freedom starts. It starts in your relationship with Jesus, which then regardless, I mean, I tell everyone, I fit every government funding category in Australia. <laughs> I was a marginalised, depressed, dispossessed, poor ethnic, minority, abused, adopted chick. I could make a fortune <laughs> on government funding. They fund people like me, give me a label and say victim, come back next week, yeah. collect your cheque and we'll remind you you're a victim. But I read the Word of God. It says that, you know what, he has redeemed my life from the pit that I don't have to live as a victim, but we are more than through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. And I think that is huh. the truth that I discovered. Beautiful. Could have been a victim but decided to be a victor. That's because of the redemptive work of Jesus. We all have access to that. Now you're dealing with some people who really are victims oh, yeah. of the exploitation of other people. Human trafficking is much bigger than most of us Absolutely. can possibly understand. We think of it as something that's isolated and we'll never see it right. or touch it. How big an issue is human trafficking? Oh, it's, it's the fastest growing crime worldwide, faster than, um, you know, the selling of drugs or armaments is the selling of human beings. And that shouldn't be so on our watch. 40 million slaves, more than ever before. 14 million. Four zero. 40. 40 million slaves. 40 million slaves, more than ever at the height of the transatlantic slave the trade. truth is, Christine, we will probably encounter some of these people yes. who are slaves. They may be working in restaurants or hotels. Definitely. Or we'll bump, see men in, in, in the concourses of airports as they're being moved from one place to the other. It'll never occur to us that they're actually owned by someone who is using them for their own financial exploitation. Absolutely, and it's all over uh, America. That's why the Can You See Me campaign is huge. We have it on billboards um, with a hotline um, because we want to help educate people how to identify those that are hidden in plain sight. And we probably go past them every day in our community. And the fact is that all of us can make a difference. I think sometimes people go, are you not overwhelmed by the magnitude of the statistics, Christine? You know, mm. 40 million slaves. But here's the truth, that there are, you know, let's be generous, but about 2 billion Christians on the earth. That means there's more light than there is darkness. Mm. If every single one of us becomes aware um, of how we can identify the potential victims of trafficking, how we can help make a difference. And we have a three-pronged attack. You know, we reach the vulnerable, we rescue those that are, um, you know, enslaved, and then we help to restore the survivors. Uh, we can all make a difference and we can abolish it, but it's going to take every single one of us making a difference. I know you talk about things people can do, and a lot of it yes. starts so that we're free ourselves. It's hard Definitely. to free somebody else if we're enslaved yeah. by our own sins. But beyond the book, are there some simple things that one of our viewers out there who's right now touched yes. could do to help save a person from slavery? Absolutely. And, you know, the thing that I always love to say is everyone has access to a computer pretty much. Click on a21.org. There are 21 things, don't cost anything, that you can do today, wherever mm. you are, anywhere in the world. Here's a letter you can write. Here's a hotline you can contact. Here's how you can connect with law enforcement or our government officials. Um, because a lot of people do care about this issue. Yeah. And I think it's going to take every one of us working together to be able to do something. I cannot thank you enough, not only for being here, but also for the life message that you're giving. The book is Undaunted and... Uh, Christine is definitely undaunted and unafraid. It's available at your favorite bookseller, online or in retail stores. You can also read a free sample at christinecane.com. You can learn more about fighting human trafficking, as Christine said, at a21.org. That's a21.org. It's on your screen. And of course, of course, watch Christine Kane's series, Equip and Empower, Tuesdays, 10.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on TVN.
Now our dauntless announcer, Keith Bilbrey, is going to tell you why you better stick around for the rest of the show. Well, next, political activist Candace Owens and author T. Martin Bennett's amazing Pearl Harbor story. Later, memories of Dean Martin from his daughter, Dina Martin, right here on Huckabee. Huckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. My next guest is a fearless champion of conservative principles and the founder of the Blexit movement. Her upcoming book is entitled Blackout, How Black America Can Make Its Second Escape from the Democrat Plantation. It's a joy to welcome back to our show Candace Owens. Candace, great to have you back. I want to get right into the message of your book. Uh, you say that black Americans have essentially been hoodwinked into thinking that they don't have a choice but to be liberal Democrats. Why are they wrong? I very deeply believe that there is tons of proof to say that black Americans, once we were physical slaves of a Democrat party, and I say of a Democrat party because at the time of, of the Civil War, not a single Republican in this country owned a slave. And, and now we have ideological slavery where they've essentially, they've tricked us into believing that we have freedom when really um, they've gotten us addicted to government, addicted to government handouts. Uh, we see the breakdown of family, the climb of illiteracy rates, the climb of abortion rates, all of this harming the black family. So I mean, I'm, I'm making a case here that black Americans need to wake up and once again escape the Democrat plantations. You were once a Democrat yourself. So what was that turning point, the light that came on for you? What really happened for me was that after I got all out of all the brainwashing from our education system, which plays a big role in brainwashing black Americans against our own best interests, I started to ask myself, is it possible that racism is now being used as a theme to turn black people into single issue voters? And of course, the answer is yes. They keep us emotional so that we don't think rationally about the fact that their policies just don't serve us. The, the, uh, the movement that you created, Blexit, uh, very clever, coming kind of after the Brexit movement of uh, the UK, but it really is about uh, black Americans exiting the Democrat Party. Uh, I, I would say not just to become Republican, but to become more independent-minded, to think for themselves and to ask, why do I support this person or why do I not support this person? What kind of reaction did you have from uh, black Americans when you started Blexit? You know, before I started Blexit, it was really ugly territory. I was called all the typical names that a black conservative gets called uh, when you have the audacity to think for yourself, and not just think for yourself, but to speak out for yourself. But then something started to change, and there's something changing in this country, and I've called this early. Black Americans are waking up. Um, and, and they started being grateful to me. When I walk down the street, you know, I live here in D.C., black Americans come up to me and they say, um, thank you so much for waking me up. They're realizing that they've been sleeping at the wheel. Um, and really what I'm saying is just to embrace your futures. You, you can be in the driving seat um, of your future. Let's talk about the fact that uh, the Democratic Party is supposed to be the party of diversity. But right now, there's not a, a single... A uh, black person on that Democrat stage. Kamala Harris is gone. Cory Booker didn't qualify for the most recent debate that's coming up. So all in the name of diversity, there just isn't a lot of diversity. I don't understand why people can't look at that and say, maybe there's something not quite right here. You know what they actually hate? Diversity of thought. And, and I'm a great example of that. They routinely attack me and they try to assassinate my character as they do to all black conservatives that came before me. You'll see people use the excuse, you know, Candace, you get attacked because you support Trump, and I don't like Trump. I say, really? Then what was the excuse when it was Condoleezza Rice, right? What was the excuse when it was Clarence Thomas? Um, what about every other black conservative that came before me? It's because they do not like diversity of thought. They think that they own black ideas, and they're about to be in for a rude awakening, because I predict that in 2020, the black vote will swing 20 points in the other direction. Speaking of the, uh, the black vote, big election next year for president. President Trump four years ago said, what have you got to lose? And he challenged African-Americans to vote for him because he said the policies of the Democrats have led them to very high unemployment rates. Recent numbers have come out just this week. Uh, best numbers ever of employment in the past 50 years, best ever for African-Americans. 
I mean, shouldn't many black Americans wake up and say, wait a minute, the, you know, I may not like this president, what he says or what he does or the way he says it, but by golly, it's worked out a lot better for me uh, than the policies of the left. We are thinking that, and that's why you're seeing these polls. And think about how amazing these polls are. Over the last three years, the left has called everything racist. They could not have said the word racist more. I think somebody calculated that over one week, CNN had said the word racist something like 1,200 times, which is pointedly ridiculous. I read an article accusing air oxygen of being racist and harming black and Hispanic Americans. You know what's happening? The left is again overplaying their hand. I'm anxious to find out, have you uh, been invited to be on MSNBC or CNN to talk about uh, your book, Blackout? Are they going to let you on and, and really practice some level of diversity of thought? I'm going to guess no, hope yes. They don't tend to let me on those networks because, um, of course, I make a lot of sense. Um, and they can't use their normal tricks, right? Usually they shut down people by saying, oh, you don't understand uh, because you aren't black or you don't understand because you're a man. Well, of course, you know, I sit at the top of the progressive stack. They've created a world where you can't really insult a black American woman uh, that's out speaking about her freedom. So they don't want to put me in the room because I expose them for what they are and what they are is a bunch of frauds. You've spoken to over 60 college campuses. I know sometimes it's been controversial. You've had the protesters. But do you see any hope on the university campuses of America that maybe at least some of these students are waking up, that they're being overwhelmed with nonsense? And uh, is, is there hope? Give me some. I'm asking you, I think. Is there hope on the academic uh, front out there? There is hope. I see hope every single day. And why I love to go to these college campuses is because I like when they attack me. I like to expose them. We live in the age of social media. I have a ton of followers. If conservatives are so hateful, why aren't we the ones showing up trying to shut down liberal speech? It always works the other way. You see, if I see someone that I disagree with, I want to debate them. I want to hand them a megaphone because I believe that my ideas are better. It's a great way for us to conclude uh, a wonderful conversation. Candace, thank you so much. Delighted to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you can pre-order Blackout right now from your favorite bookseller, and I hope you will. I think you'll find it a remarkable book. You can also join the Blexit movement at Blexit.com and BlexitFoundation.org. Be sure to watch or listen to The Candace Owens Show on PragerU.com. Now, also remember that you can follow Candace on Instagram at RealCandaceOwens and on Twitter at RealCandaceO. Keith, you seem to have been holding back a little bit tonight, so I want you to let loose about the good stuff that's still ahead in the show. Oh, here we go. I'm glad to do it. Stay tuned for the conversion story of Pearl Harbor's most notorious pilot. And later, Dean Martin's daughter, Dina Martin, tells stories of life with Dad and then performs right here on Huckabee. Welcome back, everyone. Well, I think you know that this weekend, December the 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, and it is the perfect day to have my next guest here. He's the author of the riveting bestseller called Wounded Tiger. It's an amazing story, and it's a true story of the Japanese pilot who led the attack on Pearl Harbor and how an American prisoner and a girl he never met changed his life. Please welcome Martin Bennett. Martin, welcome. Great to Good have to you. Good to be here. Thanks so much. We all know the story of December 7th and the, uh, I would say, cowardly attack on Pearl Harbor. It was uh, an unannounced, unprovoked attack, a sneak attack. Uh, Roosevelt said a day that will live in infamy. It certainly has. The lead pilot, Mitsuo Fujita, uh, had a real change of life. But before he did, he was a very angry, bitter man. He, he hated America, and uh, he was proud of his nation, Japan. He wanted their nation to rise up, to be uh, respected like, like, the great, like Great Britain, the United States, Germany. And uh, so he was handpicked by Admiral Yamamoto to lead the Pearl Harbor attack, and he was happy to do it. Obviously very successful from the Japanese standpoint, um, but the Japanese ultimately lost the war. They lost more than the war. They lost their economy. They lost face, which in the culture was the worst thing they could have lost. 
Uh, he went through a long period of struggle and, and this anger only grew worse and the bitterness. So when did he think maybe there was something different that he should give an attention to? Well, there's to? a lot of things that led up to what turned his whole life around. And probably the most stunning was the fact that he was in Hiroshima. He was stationed there with troops and he was waiting for their assignments and they were discussing all their plans for the ultimate invasion by the United States. And he gets a phone call. Uh, he leaves Hiroshima. The next day, the city is bombed by the atomic bomb. Everybody was killed, all his friends, everybody. I mean, you know, tens of thousands of people. The next day, he flies down on a plane to inspect what's happening, and he spends three days in radioactive uh, rubble. And uh, a month later, almost everybody in his party is dying, but he wasn't. So after the war, he started thinking, why am I not dead? What is going on? And that's when he hears of these two other stories that dovetail with his story. So Wounded Tiger is really three stories. 50% is about Puchita. About 30% is a guy named Jake DeShazer, who's an American from Oregon, who, who joined the US Army Air Corps before the Air Force. Uh, he bombed Japan, become a prisoner of war. And then there's the Covell family. Uh, they were teachers and missionaries in Japan, and they fled to the Philippines. So these three plot lines have nothing to do with each other, and they ultimately they come together. And what happens is Jake's story slowly interfaces with Fuchita and Peggy Covell's story slowly interfaces with Fuchita. As a really interesting footnote, I've only spoken to one person in the world who knew Peggy Covell, and I talked to her yesterday on the phone. First time you First ever time talked to her? First time I ever talked to her. So her story, this girl, Peggy Covell, is the fulcrum of the entire story. Of How did she Tiger. play a role in getting Fuchita and Jake DeShazer somehow to connect? She's the daughter of the, she's in the Covell family, uh, her parents went to the Philippines. They sent their children to the United States to be safe. And then when they realized that, that it was not safe in the Philippines, it was too late. They couldn't get off the islands. And the Japanese came and invaded. And her, her parents were captured. And so when Peggy found out about what had happened to her parents uh, as a Christian, she wanted to do something loving toward her enemies. We're supposed to love our enemies. So she volunteered to work at an internment camp in... Colorado, what happens is Fuchita hears about her story from his engineer. And his engineer was a prisoner of war in the United States, and the engineer and Peggy Covell met each other. And what happens and how it all happens, when Fuchita hears this, he thinks, why would you love your enemies? You should hate your enemies. And that was one of the things that started turning around, what is going on, why, you know, first of all, why did we fail so horribly yeah. in the war? And, and what were we seeking? And you know, why am I not dead? So these things all, you know, they, each thing just provoked him further. And of course, Jake DeShazer's story comes in there as well, which is a, almost a phenomenal story in and of itself. And eventually, um, he loved America. He became friends. His children became American citizens. Fuchita's friends became Fuchita. American citizens. Yeah, Fuchita, his children became yeah. American citizens. And his daughter endorses the book. She's alive in San Francisco right now. So when I started researching it, I thought, well, this is a film. I mean, this is a full-on movie. Yeah. So I wrote the screenplay. I got in front of people. Um, they said, yeah, we love it. We'd like to fund it, but it'll be our baby from here on in. Were you worried about that the faith element that really is the heart of this yeah, story would be taken away? You know what I think away? about the, the film uh, based on the book Unbroken? Yeah. It was made into a film. Right. Uh, they did a good job of it, and I don't know that they're necessarily anti-Christian, but maybe they just don't understand that part, but they cut all that out. So the story really didn't work quite as well when they put it to the screen, and I felt really bad for uh, Louis Zamperini and his family and, and people who love the book. And I don't want that to happen to Wounded Tiger, so that's, I didn't, I, I said, I, I can't do that. So what he does, I took the screenplay, novelized to book form, it was kind of an afterthought, but you know, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Yeah. Um, I have a gift in writing I didn't really realize so much, so it, it won a National Book of the Year Award, has the highest five-star rating of any novel on Amazon, and it's, it's way up on the charts, so. It's a great part of our American history but it's an even greater part of the history of how redemption works in people's lives when God takes the most unbelievable circumstances and turns them around. Wounded Tiger, it's available now on Amazon. You can also learn more. You can order the book uh, at woundedtiger.com. Check out Facebook for Wounded Tiger's story and follow him on Instagram and Twitter at T. Martin Bennett. It is all on your screen. Now, if you're in the mood for some Christmas cheer, I want you to visit us after the show on Huckabee.tv. 
We have an exclusive interview and some great Christmas performance from Ernie Haas and Signature Sound. I got a brand new album called Jazzy Little Christmas. It's just fantastic. We look forward to seeing you after the show on Huckabee.tv. Keith, why don't you tell us about the very special segment that we still have coming up? Oh, you're going to love it. Next, Dina Martin shares stories of her father, Dean Martin. Then we celebrate Christmas as Dina sings right here on Huckabee. My next guest grew up with a dad by the name of Dean Martin, the king of cool. But she is a musical force all her own. Her vocal power blends beautifully with a large symphony or in a nightclub, uh, even with a jazz ensemble. Now, in her spare time, she's also a best-selling author, a gifted actor, and a licensed pilot. Now, I think that is pretty cool. Would you please welcome Dina Martin. Dina. You know, that's quite the resume, Dina, to have all that uh, incredible background. Tell us what we don't know about Dean Martin. Uh, let's see. What you uh, maybe didn't know about him is that, you know, that drinking bit yeah. was just a gimmick. So he really wasn't smashed out there on the stage. <laughs> no, how could he do that body of work? Well, you wonder about did. that, but he, he had such a persona. I remember watching him for the first time when I was very little and I went to the Sands Hotel in the Copa Room. He was funny and he, was, he sang beautifully and he made everybody, he pulled everybody in. So you're telling us he wasn't that funny at home? Oh, he was funny at home. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was strict though. Was he? Yeah, he was an Italian father and uh, if, if we did something wrong, you'd hear about it from your brothers and sisters. Uh-oh, you're going in, in the den, into the den. <laughs> so you go into the den, you wait, and then he'd open the door, and he'd walk in, the tears would come down, he'd close the door, and he'd say, tell your mom that I was really tough on you. <laughs> <laughs> and don't ever be late again. Okay. <laughs> You've got some great stories in this wonderful, it's a best-selling memoir of yes, your dad. Yes, yes. Uh, memories are made of this, Dina Martin, is your look at the, the life of your dad and all the things about being his daughter. Did he expect you to become an entertainer as well? Was that something he encouraged, pushed, or hoped for? Uh, no, you know what? He wanted us to do whatever it is we wanted to do. Okay. He just, you know, uh, be good at what you do, treat people the way you want to be treated, and you can't go wrong. And, you know, when I told him I wanted to go into this, I mean, it was just, it's in my genes. You yeah. know, I just love to sing and dance and do all of that. And he just said, Dina, always show up early, be on time, and, and don't embarrass me. That was the advice. It's pretty good advice, though. <laughs> yeah. Your music is incredible. I mean, it's, there's no doubt that uh, your dad's genetic factor has come alive in Dina Martin. Oh, thank you. I want you to sing for us, and uh, Dina's going to get ready to sing. Keith Vilbury will tell our viewers how they can connect with Dina Martin. Keith, tell us how. To get your copy of Dina's memoir of her father, Memories Are Made of This, as well as her latest album, Swing Street, go to her website, dinamartin.com. And don't miss her wonderful Christmas show on December 8th at the Smith Center in Las Vegas. After the show, go to Huckabee.tv to watch Dina's wonderful performance of Bellissima. Now, here to sing is Dina Martin. There's 
there's a feeling of Christmas. Children laughing, people passing, meeting smile after smile. Silver bell. 